Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Carl Quintanilla in for Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk, Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, oil prices posting their biggest gain in almost three months. Will tomorrow's OPEC meeting add more fuel to the fire? We'll break down opportunities in that sector. Tesla upping its service gain for some of its earliest customers, why owners of the original Roadster may no longer be left in the dust. Shares of Slack and company, formerly known as Restoration Hardware, both on the move. How should you trade these stocks after the latest round of results? But we'll start with the market's big rebound. The major average is finally shaking off that post-Thanksgiving coma, ending a three-day losing streak today. Are another new set of records around the corner, or is this rally just a flash in the pan, guys? First of all, no, 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 just not get- welcome. welcome. <laughs> Thank you. We I need more momentum killer. I just, I just dropped the hammer on momentum. And, you know, we wear these things in our ears. You're familiar with these things? They yes. call them the IFBs. And they just told me, you hear the bell? They told me in my ear that your name back at HQ is C. Quint. C. Quint. So we might, we might just take right, the C. So. Quint thing. So, Quint, <laughs> to answer your original question, no, I think today was a flash in the pan. I think December 15th comes. I think the president levies these tariffs. I think the market goes down. I would think the S&P trades down to 30-30, which is basically 90 or so handles from where we are now. And then we'll have another conversation. But I think today was a bounce into a market that's been down three days. Steve? I agree with that, but I do believe that the market will bounce back even in the last two weeks of the year if he puts on the new tariffs. So I I agree with that level two, 3,000 roughly in the S&P. But the market, who, who wants to sell this market? Long onlys want to be long. Long, uh, long short hedge funds will, will underperform if the market trades lower. So momentum is still on for the year end. I think it's interesting. Is I would say, who wants to trade it? I mean, if you think about what we've had day over day. So the SMH is now up 1.5% today after being down 1.8% today. So these headlines are impossible to read. Um, but what you can read is, is the data that was out this morning. So you had ADP numbers, which clearly tell you, whatever you want to say, we talk all the time about the U.S. consumer. I'm not telling you the job market's falling out of bed. But again, the three-month average, the six-month average, the nine-month average, that trend is down. You've got jobless claims tomorrow. I think it's a, it's a pretty benign indicator typically, but we've had two straight weeks of really terrible jobless claims, and you have a payroll number on Friday. And I hate to be, you know, playing the role of Dan Nathan here. Dan, wherever you are, it's Danny Downer. Phoenix, but, I believe. But I mean, if you look at that ISM services <laughs> number today again, so for people that want to point out, and I would guess that Guy is in this camp, look, the macro isn't doing anything to get you excited. Um, I, I, I agree, however, with Steve that ultimately, as we've been saying, trying to, to game trade war rhetoric has been a losing battle and that the market wants to go up. And if you look at bull bear sentiment, the bulls still seem to be in charge. So. Although the global, ma- you know, when you look at the manufacturing PMIs, they've been getting a little bit better, right? So, I mean, that's something I think when you look at the bigger scheme of things. But when we look right here at the United States, we, we have a strong consumer. And let's just think about this for a second. The president's kicked this down the road many, many times. This time, this last time, he kicked it all the way a year out, right? Mm-hmm. And our big reaction was we're down 280 points. Right. So because of that, I think you have to be a little bit more conscious of the idea that we've had 
a very interesting and a very successful earnings season that we've just gone through. That's been very strong. And because of that, that volatility moved yesterday, and it moved the last couple of days, you know, Monday, Tuesday, pretty strong to the upside. But when you look at that, Carl, we got up to a 17. Okay, 17. That means a 1% move in the marketplace. That wasn't a 20 or a 22. Right. So, So when you look at it from that perspective, okay, what happens December 15th? Well, there's a really good chance that we kind of kick this thing around again. We probably don't get a whole lot done. Maybe there's a phase one. I'm not even so sure how big phase one is anymore in terms of the markets. Now, it would give a little bit of a positivity to it. But outside of that, Carl, I think this has more to Who's do with... Who's going to short the market, though? I think it's genius, the fact that he, he, he divided this up right. into phase one and future yes. phases. Because last year, we probably made more progress on trade than we did this year, yet the market screamed higher. So people are nervous about shorting it ahead of a trade announcement. How could you do that? You're going to get run except, over? Except for the fact that until yesterday, we thought we had a trade announcement. And if you look phase at Phase one, though, still. Phase yeah, one. Yeah, but, but again, phase one was even pushed out, and the market got spooked, and you'd had the S&P that had rallied. But it was a uh, minor spook. Right. I'm not trying to interrupt you. I'm just saying... When you think well, you, about you the think move, three percent in twenty-four hours. You don't think you don't. You're not spooked I don't, by it. I, and the volatility didn't tell me from. that the world yeah. was spooked but by the it either. The more important thing to me is that the S and P had run ten percent in forty-one sessions, uh, and that to me tells me that the market feels pretty good about a trade deal. And yeah, I agree with everything you guys are saying. This is a hiccup over the last couple of days. We've seen this so many times in the last year that that's not something you should be trading on. And I, I think that would be scary. Yeah, I mean, earnings pizza. Earnings were good, but I mean, earnings growth is definitely slowing over the last couple of years. There's no denying that. I mean, again, the president's a wild card. December 15th is absolutely out there. The globe might be improving, but it's improving off a level that's pretty miserable. That ADP number is the worst, I think, in nine years. I mean, people think the Fed has their back. Maybe so. The business uh, activity listen, component was the worst since 09. Which is right. pretty so. remarkable. I mean, it's 10 years. Think about where we are in this. So, listen, oh, you, I just under- said, you just said something there. The Fed has their back. So if, the, if that economic yeah. data I don't think continues do, to though. get worse, you could have a Fed that becomes back in play, even though they have a limited amount of ammo going forward. Do we agree with that? We think the, with the, we're, we're more likely to go into an easing mode than a hiking mode. Right? That's, I, yeah, I, I think the, risk, the risk is to ease, not yeah. to hike. I think the Fed is probably out of, right now, based upon even just we had static data, they're out of commission until the middle part of next year, I think. Well, our next guest says today's bounce may not bounce into the new year. Let's bring in Chris Harvey, head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Chris, good to see you. Good to see what you, do, you What do we mean when we say that? So what I mean is our price target is 3088. We're about a percent away from that. At this point, what's the risk reward? What, what kind of upside are you seeing? What kind of downside are you seeing? You're seeing a limited upside and a growing amount of downside. But more importantly, as we look forward, you've squeezed a lot of juice out of this trade. The 10 years at 1718. Investment grade credit spreads are 100 and 110 basis points. You attack on a healthy 3% risk premium, and you're looking at mid-single digits for the next one, two, three years. At this point, I, you know, I keep hearing my father's voice saying in the back of my head, don't screw it up, right? You're up 20%. They have medication is, for Did that. you do that a lot, Chris? Was that an issue for you growing up? A lot of therapy. Sorry. Years of therapy. Yeah, I don't even want to know, all right? What's the biggest positive that's on the horizon for the market then? Um, biggest positive? We've been looking more at the negatives than the positives because the positives have been the Fed's going to cut rates. They cut rates. Fed is sentiment's really poor. Now the sentiment's rather positive. Sentiment is trading tariff needs to get done. Well, it looks like it's going to be five minutes, so it could be five minutes, could be five days, could be five months. And so we're looking at the negatives. The negatives are 401ks, 
you look at, again, you look at my dad, you look at my mom, they have to take money out of their 401ks. If you look at the Fed, at some point, this QE, not QE, is going to end. We'll have less liquidity in the beginning of next year. And more importantly, I think that people's expectations for growth are just too high at this point in time. And we need to ratchet things down. And we haven't even talked about the political risk at this point. Chris, I've asked this question before, but I'll ask it again. I mean, the U.S. equity market, Pete mentioned the VIX went to 17 yesterday, but it's right. meandering around 14 forever. Yeah. Bond market, 10-year yields, I mean, that sucker moves major way. I mean, if that were the equity market, we'd talk about it every single day based on the volatility. I mean, we have 10 basis points moves almost on seemingly a daily basis. Is that concerning at all? That is highly concerning. If we see 1.5 in the 10-year, I think risk aversion comes back to the 4. And you're right. We were looking at this the other day. You're having 10 basis point moves every day. That tells you the market's really, really jittery. At some point in time, if you see that catch a very strong bid, it's going to be hard to price risk assets. Uh, excuse me, price uh, risk assets higher. So we continue to watch that day in and day out. Yeah, but the the problem is you went off on a litany of things that are negative on the market. And the market has yeah. ate them up, spit right. them out. So I do hear it's all about right. estimates for me. Right. So wherever earnings estimates are, Q1 is where the market's going to go. Do you feel like they're too high for Q1? I, I, oh, for Q1, that, that's a tough one because we're still looking. We're bringing down fourth quarter estimates. I think. For all of 2020, estimates are still too high. I think you're looking at 0 to 5% growth for next year, and people are up in the single, high single digits at this point in time. So they do have to come down. So your 12-month target, if you, if you publish one? Uh, we, uh, we're, we're pacing ourselves at this point in time. So we'll be putting one out very shortly. Um, but do you but see a down year next year? We don't see a down year, but we, we don't see a whole lot of great opportunity to the upside at this point in time. Next year is going to be a year you really want to trade and you want to trade your book. The opportunity is going to open and close rather quickly. We're going to have a lot of spikes in volatility. Um, the decay will be pretty fast, but a lot of opportunities will open up. Is there a sector right now that you're looking at where you say, you know what, uh, it's moved, but I still think they have more room to run? Is it yeah. the financials or where, where is it that you'd say right now I'd be looking with less risk right. on, but yeah. I still have risk in the market? I, that's a great question, great point. So we upgraded banks back in September. They've run. They're up 35%. We would love to see them pull back, and if they do, we would jump back in. So financials are a place that we really want to put money to work longer term. Okay, really quick, because you started this with the context of, you know, we have no growth or growth is not going to be that great. What does right. that mean? Put a number on that, at least in the con. What's, yeah. your, what's your chief economist say? What, what right. does bad growth mean? So bad growth, it's not bad growth. It's just not great growth. So globally, I think they're looking for three, two. What we're looking for is, is in the twos domestically. And what I'm looking for for EPS is, is zero to five percent. So it's not negative. It's just not great. And how do you price multiples higher after you brought rates down, after you brought credit spreads down, after you had the Fed cutting rates, and after we priced in so much good news around trade and tariff. Once we get phase one done, I don't think we have phase two for at least 12 months. If Mar- we ever Mar- market do. knows that, though, right? market understands that. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think so. Well, again, look at what we've seen over the last couple of days. Like, phase one is done. It's done. It's done. It's not done, right? So market pulls back. We may not get phase one done until, until March. And now the question is, and I, somebody said this earlier, is what are the expectations? Is phase one going to come in in line, or is it going to beat expectations or less? It's going to be hard for phase one to beat expectations at this juncture. Chris, thanks. Good to see you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, well, with that, I mean, you can't say sentiment's getting toppy, right, the more you hear narratives like that? So I... I th- I was of the mindset that once we get a trade deal done, it was the top of the market you could sell it. They, what screwed me up is when they said, we're going to divide it up into phases, because now they pushed you out to when you could sell into that, sell the news event. I think we are going to see estimates dictate direction. So wherever, wherever the estimates are, 
that's where you're going to go. But I believe from now to the end of the year, the markets will move higher. 3250. Tim? So I, I don't want to put too much pressure on Chris, and Chris is not a chief economist. So, I mean, when we talk about growth, but if the U.S. economy grows at 2%, okay. this market is cheap. At, at, at 1.7 long term rates and rates where the Fed is going. Um, I, I think what has worked has been this barbell of discretionary and kind of the high growth names and, and then go for value. Some of the industrial names, if we're growing at 2% into next year, and I think it's actually more like, you know, one to one and a half, one and a half to, to one and three quarters, but I think you've got that dynamic. And remember also the breadth of this rally has been in every corner of it. And, and I think that's what supported this market. And I think you have to be fearful of, of that leaving you soon. Yeah, and I still think the president's the wild card. I think he <laughs> feels, and he has said this, that he has equity to play with in terms of the stock market given the rally. I think he'll use that equity over the next month or so. I think in his mind, he says himself, in the spring, this is when I'm going to get this thing on course. That's when elections are won. So I think from now to then, it can be dicey. I still think the VIX at wherever we close today is way too cheap, given all the risks that are out there. And we've got incredible volumes in the derivatives market. And just just Chris's point, last thing, financials. Even with this run, Carl, they're cheap, and there's still potential there for much higher levels. All right, guys, coming up, uh, we've got After Hours Action in Slack and RH. Both companies just had results. We're going to break down the big headlines. Later on, oil prices getting energized in today's session. Is there Mm. opportunity Mm. in this beaten-down sector? Stick around. We are live from Times Square in New York City, and there's a lot more Fast Money after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a little earnings whip. Shares of Slack and RH, company formerly known as Restoration Hardware, on the move after reporting results. we got full team coverage on both of those names. Meg Terrell standing by on RH. But let's start with Slack. Deirdre Bosa in San Francisco with details. D. Well, Carl, Slack still has to prove to investors that it can pull in more paying users in a more competitive environment. To that point, the call is underway, and CEO Stuart Butterfield started off by throwing a little bit of shade at Microsoft, pointing out that the overwhelming majority of customers, his customers, are Office 365 customers. He says they choose Slack because of the user experience. Butterfield also acknowledging Microsoft's 20 million daily active users and questioning how that is calculated, saying that they could be forced migrations. Now, the stock is turning around and gaining ground in the after hours as that call continues. And guys, the company also announcing a change to its board of directors that I want to mention. Michael McNamara, former CEO of Flex, product development firm, joining the board. And early investor Chamath Palahapatia stepping down. Back to you. All right. Uh, Dee, thanks very much. Pete, the back and forth between those two, Microsoft and Slack, getting interesting. Slack definitely trying to attack their competition, which makes sense. They should be going after them. But I think the real reality of the story is that Microsoft still owns this. They've got a growth rate that's far better. And whether it's forced or not, people are using Teams. So that's something where I think they've got a huge advantage. 20 million daily active users right now for Microsoft. But I will say this about Slack, which I've been very critical. They're getting closer to someday making money. I don't like in this market, we talked about the market just a minute ago, we were talking about this big wide range of the market. 
In a market like this, Carl, I think it's very difficult to own companies that don't make money. And this is one of those names. It doesn't make money. They've got great revenue. They've got some growth. They still aren't on the positive side, like Uber, like Lyft, like a lot of different Isn't it interesting now that Microsoft uh, gained 7 million users since July? Right. So I don't care if it's forced migration. Right. He shouldn't have brought that up. No. Because then that makes me think they can't win. Because if people are forced to play by Microsoft's game, then they have to win. I, I'd rather go with the Bohemian. They're the I big dog, long. and they own the space. I, I, I'm long Microsoft. I think that Pete's right. Once they start making money, you could see this thing tick off the bottom. But until then, I'd rather have Microsoft that has a lot of levers, as Wolf would say, to yeah. pull. Levers. Uh, I, I think they're levers. But I, I would say that Microsoft, <laughs> on a relative basis, again, everything you guys are saying, and on valuations, it's not even close. I realize it's a different business in composite with Microsoft. But Slack's problem is evaluation, and I agree with Pete. You have to make money here. Quickly, though, I mean, this stock, given this quarter, which was actually pretty good by their standards, I mean, paid customers up 30% year over year. You can go through margins much better, although they're still clearly losing money. They're on the right trajectory. I thought, given the run the stock has had to the downside, given the short interest, given what we just heard, this stock should be over 23 right now, given this quarter. And it's not even close. So the market doesn't necessarily like this. I think that's your tell. The stock should be higher. It's not. I think that's all you need to know right now. While we're talking, guys, I got a news alert this afternoon on Boeing. Phil LeBeau has that. Phil. Uh, Carl, the chief engineer for Boeing Commercial Airplanes, John Hamilton, is resigning from the company. Uh, Hamilton was most notably, most recently known as the person who was sitting next to Dennis Mullenberg when uh, he was on Capitol Hill for a couple of congressional hearings, and he was asked a number of questions about engineers or employees at Boeing uh, expressing concerns about the development of the 737 MAX. So again, John Hamilton, chief engineer for Boeing Commercial Airplanes, is resigning. The company says he planned to retire last year. He pushed it off, they said, to work on helping get the MAX back. His departure now, the latest executive to leave the company as they continue to wrestle with the 737 MAX. And this MAX uh, saga, whatever you want to call it, crisis that's been going on since March, well, it's continuing to have an impact. This time, it's in the form of United Airlines ordering not Boeing airplanes, but Airbus airplanes. One factor is that Boeing did not have a plane to compete with the A321 XLR. That is a long-range plane that will be replacing uh, Boeing 757s for United Airlines. So now you've got a number of airlines including several in North America, United, American, Frontier, JetBlue, they've all now ordered this new airplane from Airbus because they can't order one from Boeing. Boeing doesn't have a model to compete with the XLR. It was widely expected that they would announce one, perhaps at the Paris Air Show earlier this year, but clearly they're focused on the MAX right now, and they've said they have not made a decision on, quote, a middle market airplane, so as a result... You have Airbus racking up another order. They And again, Boeing says no decision has been made on whether or not it will come up with a middle market plane. One last thing, guys. Take a look at shares of Airbus versus Boeing this year. And you will see a dramatic split between the two shares. And people will say, well, look, Boeing's still holding in well, despite the fact that the MAX is not being delivered. But here's the difference, guys. Look at the orders that have been racked up this year. 721 by Airbus negative 95 by Boeing. That says it all why investors at a minimum have said, I'm going with Airbus for the foreseeable future as opposed to Boeing.
All right, Phil, appreciate that. Our Phil LeBeau. You bet. Uh, Tim, all right, so we got executive departures, obviously some order disparity. We don't know what they're going to owe these carriers later on. That's been Kramer's big point. Yep. Why is it hanging in there? Well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons, including the fact that it is a duopoly and there's not a lot of other places to go, and, and that the, you know, the, you know, the order book for Boeing still is very robust. And if they, you know, the company, I think, has been reasonable in guiding expectations on, on the max and coming back online. Um, they've got 400 planes in inventory, and I think you're going to start to see them crank them out. You United and a couple other air handlers, you know, I think people are also very critical of they of being so exposed to Boeing and, and you know, give, give Delta a lot of credit for not having any exposure. So, I mean, I think some of this is also, hey, how about United trying to throw a little something back at Boeing? Because this has been a very difficult point for, for United. You know, what's really interesting is that I, I can make this analogous to the China supply chain issue that what Tim just said, that companies are trying to decrease their dependency on Boeing. And that's going to be going forward. That's only going to increase. So I think that Boeing has hung in there, but ultimately it's probably a tremendous headwind two to five years out that we're not even thinking but about. But where are they going to go? And, and I, I hear you, but again, you right look there. at that relative value chart, and that chart, that's been priced in. That's yesterday's chart. It's not yeah, tomorrow's it, chart. No, because there's still a lot of stuff that's hanging out there. Was it enough of an executive departure? Is there going to be deeper cuts through the executive team? Do, do they want the CEO's head at this point? Where, where are they going to go through this? So I don't think it's over by a long shot. I, think a, so go ahead. I was just going to say... Basically, I look at that chart from Phil, and I immediately say, you know what? And I understand the argument you guys are having right now, but I look at Boeing, and I'm thinking, what else could they throw at them at this point in time? That's my point. What else is left to throw at them? So, but if people start don't buying you see that a different plane, right? I do think people that start that's buying a different happen. plane. Yep. The same way that China, once the trade deal is over, Apple still migrated away from China. There's right. still going to be a host of other companies. No doubt about that. If the S and P companies are already thinking about how to diversify the supply chain, now you're going to see it with airlines diversifying away from from. Yeah, I, but the free cash flow is going to be something that we're all always going to be watching. I think Boeing will stand very strong with that. You still look at their backlog. It's un- unbelievable, right? I mean, so it's something where I still think you look at it and you I go, mean, yeah. And the fact I get that it's the duopoly. duopoly. No, I get the duopoly. Which is a little bit different than leaving China to go wherever you right. want to well, go. China right? was a monopoly. South, right? China was it a monopoly, was. not a duopoly. <laughs> it was, but that's over. <laughs> uh, let's get back to earnings. Restoration hardware is in the red after its results. Meg Terrell, as we said, back at HQ. Hey, Meg. Hey, Carl. Well, that stock is off slightly after a big beat on the bottom line, but they did have a huge run into the quarter helped, of course, by Berkshire Hathaway's disclosure of a 6.5% stake last month. Companies saying it's pricing power this quarter holding up well, even in the face of those China tariffs. But guys, Deirdre was talking earlier about throwing shade. Well, listen to this. CEO Gary Friedman evoking WeWork in his letter about RH's third quarter earnings, saying, quote, growth without profitability has been unjustly rewarded. Valuations were based on the misplaced belief that an online retail business is more profitable than a physical store. He goes on to say, quote, traditional retailers hoping for the same favorable valuations and in some cases driven by the fear of not being viewed as fashionable by millennials have allocated the vast majority of their capital to unnaturally grow their digital business. This has resulted in shifting, not lifting, sales online at greater costs, driving down margins while physical stores have been left to rot. We, on the other hand, he says, have chosen to take the road less traveled and believe, like Robert Frost, that it will make all the difference. Guys, taking a bit of a victory lap there as RH's stock has been doing quite well this year. Back over yeah, here. and the Frost reference. Very nice. Robert Greg. Frost. Thanks. 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 Man, it's <laughs> so lovely. Yeah, but, if, but you see, if you say you shouldn't, you shouldn't invoke Robert Frost, the genius is that is not mentioning the guy's name, right? <laughs> I mean, he screwed up the whole thing by saying, like Robert Frost. He lost me. I saw the stock just on the back of that. No, but I think at 16 times earnings, I think the stock is still relatively inexpensive. It's had a huge run, a lot of it based off 
Mr. Buffett's uh, investment, which may be him, maybe one of his minions, it doesn't matter. I still think the stock goes higher. I understand why people are taking profits here. I think the stock is still cheap. It's been a crazy year for Restoration Hardware to the positive, again, up 70 percent this year. Uh, I, I think the disappointment is that they've reiterated this 8 to 10 8 to 12 percent long-term growth. I think people wanted to hear more than that. Uh, but you get back to the valuation at 17 times 2021. This is not an expensive stock. And, and I think this is a stock that had been a huge benefic- beneficiary of the tailwind in the housing markets, in the home restoration markets. And I think these guys actually have a, a bit of a differentiated brand. You mentioned and this is migrating a, supply chain. Some may exactly. say no one's done it better than, than RH. Exactly. And they raised prices ahead of any tariffs. So they got ahead of that ball. And back in June, the stock jumped 23 percent based on guidance, based based on beating on revs, based on beating on EPS. So I think a lot of this was positioning into this print. So when you look at it after hours, it's down, flat to down. I think people are looking for, as Tim said, a little bit more bang for your buck. And now it's time to And it's a measuring stick of the economy, really. I mean, let's think about this. Everything's expensive there. I don't care who you are. It's expensive when you go to RH. But (laughs) it tells you a lot about the company. Look at the S&P. It moves with the S&P. If the S&P gets hit hard, for whatever reason, we're going to see RH go down as well. And there will probably be opportunities. So you're not buying that $3,500 chair? uh, You might hold off on a $3,500 chair, but they might discount (laughs) it to (laughs) $3,300. Then it's yours. (laughs) It's mine. (laughs) For more on all today's big earnings move, Go to our website, CNBC.com. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. We're counting down to what could be the biggest IPO in history. Will Saudi Aramco live up to the expectations? Plus, tomorrow is going to be a big day for Biogen. The report that's got investors' attention and what it could mean for the stock. All that and more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil prices surging more than 4% today on that larger-than-expected drop in inventories. The move comes as the market gets ready for that all-important OPEC meeting, which kicks off tomorrow in Vienna. A rally providing a boost to energy names, the XLE gaining more than a percent on the day. But even with today's rise, energy remains the worst-performing S&P sector this year. Where is the opportunity going into 2020? And, Tim, we're going to talk about Aramco a lot more in the next week or so. I think we will. And the, look, the Vienna meeting is often a lot of politics and a lot of theater. And, and But we might get something out of this, which is not just extending the existing cuts, but possibly some lip service enough to say that they could go deeper to support Aramco. I, I think the most important thing right now is we've gotten to a place where EMP and the energy sector is so oversold um, on a relative basis that it has to be interesting at some point. If you look at Exxon, look, there's, there's refining tailwinds, there's 
there's actually CapEx spend and, and kind of some of the, the core profitability of the company is actually improving. Um, I would just point to the fact that the, that the energy sector, as a percentage of the S&P weighting, is now 4.2%. It was 16.5% 10 years ago. This is a sector left for dead. No one's felt the need to own Does it. That and I think that's, but I, but I, think I that's wonder overdone. if that's the death nail. I wonder if that you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, it doesn't move the needle so no one gets back in. They don't have to represent themselves. The guys that try to imitate the, all the indices don't even have to be there anymore, so they don't buy it, and everyone is our closet indexers anyway. The, the only thing I see that's worth buying are still the refiners, because the commodity is in a glut supply issue going forward. Well, I, I will tell you, beta names, when in the derivatives world, and, and we might have a chart, I don't know, but we, in the derivatives world right now, the options world, this has been a dominant area for the last three days in a row, Carl. So I talked about it just the other day on Monday on, 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 on the halftime show. It's unbelievable how much paper we are seeing in the energy space right now. Absolutely extraordinary. As a matter of fact, yesterday it was about 50% of the unusual option activity we'd seen was in there. There's been about 11 or 12 different names that have hit, and some of those names have hit multiple times right now. It's unbelievable. So it's beta names, but also some of the names that kind of get forgotten about. Royal Dutch, we don't talk about that very often. British Petroleum, which I know is BP, but the old British Petroleum. Another name we don't talk about. We talk about Exxon. We talk about Chevron. We talk about Valero. We talk about some of these names. But, but if you look at the XLEP, well. Carl intro this the segment as the underperformer for, for, for the year. If you can go yeah. back, go back two years. Go back three years. Go back four years. Go back five years. The XLE has done nothing. <laughs> so you, you've sat there. I, I agree with the yeah. plays. No, and Tim, you've done this. You, you've, had, you've, had these, you've had these trades where you can make these a lot trading. of money. These are They're trading, trading yes. where you can see a lot of money. and st- Stocks can trade up. 30, 40, 50 percent yeah. in 30 days. Right. But other than that, I don't know. If and these investing. beta names move extremely fast. Then when you go to the derivative side of the world, you get a stock that goes up 5 percent. Those options are probably going up 30 or 40 percent. So the derivatives world really gives you the opportunity to get that torque into the, some of these names. Look, Schlumberger, we talked about it I mean, yeah, since I October. That stock's up 20 percent. We've been talking about it basically since October. We've talked about this double bottom at $30. Now it's 36 and change. Now you're starting to get analysts upgraded. I think Deutsche Bank in November upgraded at $42 price target. Yes, in the broad scope of things, they've underperformed, but they can still go up another 20% and actually still be relatively cheap. So I think SLB is okay here. I, I just, there are fundamentals going on in the oil space that are not terribly sexy, but they're consistent. You've got rig counts up for 15 straight months. You haven't seen that in... in, in Five years. Uh, you have a dynamic where you're actually seeing upstream spend is up, you know, high single digits. That is a positive trend. Those feed through to companies that were dead left in the water. So uh, it's, this isn't, first of all, it's not a trade for. for 10% of your portfolio. This is a trade to be looking at a higher beta name that started to show some life, and that chart actually is a very different chart than it was six months ago. Yeah. We mentioned Aramco earlier, of course, mm. and we are, we're hours away from getting some pricing on the massive IPO from Saudi Aramco. For that, we're going to turn to Leslie Picker. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Carl. That's right. Saudi Aramco's IPO could be the biggest in history once we learn those pricing details, surpassing Alibaba's U.S. share sale in 2014. Now, if Aramco prices at the high end of the range, it would raise about $25.6 billion, topping Alibaba's $25 billion raise back in 2014. Now, the order books have now been closed for both institutional and retail investors, which were reportedly met with demand that uh, out 
toothpaste supply that's available. But many American and European investors, which would normally take a look at the deal at least, have balked. Aramco canceled its roadshows to market the deal in the two regions. And typical IPO investors I've spoken with have been turned off by several factors, namely the ESG or environmental social governance implications of owning the Saudi Aramco stock. Now, on an environmental front, Aramco is the world's largest oil producer. Uh, For example, Singaporean sovereign wealth fund Tomasic decided against investing over environmental concerns. On the social front, the company is controlled by the Saudi government, which has a poor track record on human rights. And when it comes to governance, the Saudi government will continue to hold majority voting power and will also influence the company through regulations. Now, Aramco is also quite expensive, looking to debut at a $1.7 trillion valuation, which is a premium on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis relative to its peers. Those who are buying into the deal, however, are attracted to Aramco's number one position in oil production globally, as well as the potential for more than $75 billion worth of dividends to be paid out annually, as well as in 2020. Aramco will be listed on the local Saudi exchange, and the shares are expected to begin trading in a week. Carl. All right, LP, thank you very much for that. Guy, do we think uh, those social issues that she mentions are going to be a real headwind? Should be, but they won't, unfortunately. I mean, we can play this game. We can play with Facebook. We can play with, I mean, across the board. And they should be issues, but if people want to make money. Now, with that said, we're getting to a place in the world where they will be an issue. I think five years from now, absolutely we'll be having that conversation. But right now, people will talk about it. But I think if they think they can make money here, they will, they will try. You know what the biggest takeaway for me is all of a sudden now, you want to talk about a top in the market, someone ringing a bell. All of a sudden now, they want to give they others they want to give others a shot at this. They want to, and I know it's a, it's a percentage of the entire deal. But to me, that's them ringing the bell. If they're telling you that this is the high, then I think you should take their warnings. <laughs> I, I just, if you think about how this is going to trade, where it's going to trade, and who's going to trade it, too. I, I don't think this is necessarily the kind of a global listing that really makes it a benchmark. And, and also, as has been pointed out, um, look, sovereign wealth funds, including the Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund, will be a major owner of this. This, this deal will get bought, but, but who owns it? Um, and I think, you know, look, you want institutions in there that are very concerned about ESG and governance and control issues. And if they're, if they're running for the door, why would you want to follow in after that right hey, now? Is it large enough to take oxygen away from the broader market? The way I, don't, we, I, I don't think so. I think the market is so ready, Carl, that, that there's always going to be enough around for the rest of the market. But, you know, I think early on people will blame that if we see some reactions in the market. But I don't think that's actually the case. All right. Uh, coming up, Tesla promising some easy repairs for some of its most loyal customers. We'll get to take in a moment. Plus, it is reckoning day for Biogen when we get results for its latest Alzheimer's drug trial. We're going to tell you what to watch, all that and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at our Kramer cam. Mm. Jim is chatting with the CEO of mobile trading app Robinhood. The company just announced some big new numbers and Jim has all the details coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. We've got a lot more here on Fast Money. Up next, Tesla rolling out a new service for its longest customers. Why the company's offering up an unusual tune-up. And then later, why tomorrow could be a major moment of truth for Biogen investors. Full details when Fast Money comes back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla giving a much-needed tune-up to how it repairs uh, to its first car. The company sent an email to Roadster owners saying they will now get their own dedicated service advisors, technicians, and repair centers. Tesla has not made Roadster since 2012. The company no longer makes spare parts for the car. CNBC.com's Laura Kolodny first broke the story and joins us now with more of her reporting. So, Laura, what exactly do those owners get? 
So now that Tesla has been mass manufacturing vehicles, the Roadster owners, the original customers, have been feeling a little neglected. And Jerome Gielen, the president of automotive at Tesla, has reached out to assure them that they will have their own dedicated service. Light on the details, uh, what they have right now amounts to an inbox. But there were promises of dedicated technicians who have you know, specialized skills and their own repair centers. Is there any sign that this might be extended to owners of other models? Tesla has been grappling to master service as it scales. They're, you know, sort of like a teenager. They, they uh, used to have the infinite patience of their customers. Now their cars have been out for longer. Some are out of warranty. And they own the dealerships, you know, or Tesla doesn't call them dealerships. So this has been, it's been a real struggle. I wouldn't say that this kind of uh, special attention should uh, be seen again. I mean, ostensibly, any service center ought to be able to handle any car that comes in, whether it's a newer Model S, Model 3, one of the forthcoming vehicles. This really felt like outreach um, appreciation to encourage those you know, old advocates for electric cars and for Tesla to still feel good about the company and, and to feel reassured. Hey, Laura, it's Tim. How much of this is driven by broader service issues for the entire fleet? Because one of the things that um, seems to be a, a news point out there is that as the company has been going through this pullback in CapEx and all expenses, you've seen it in, in the service quality. And, and so is this placating a smaller group of folks at, you know, again, light on details is what I heard you say. I, I think that's exactly right. They haven't uh, increased CapEx and they haven't created the number of additional service centers you would think uh, to handle the entire fleet, especially considering the success of the Model 3 and the international expansion. So to me, this sounded like a way to keep loyal customers loyal. In this email that we received from you know these owners who are really excited about it, Jerome also said, hey, if you want to trade in your old Roadster, you can put the value towards a newer Tesla or one of the forthcoming next-gen Roadsters, which look pretty uh, fast and beautiful. But who knows when, when they're coming to market exactly. Um, I don't think I don't think Tesla has really mastered service yet, but it's it's trying. This is uh, this is the idea that um, they're aware of it, and at least they're being level about that. Yeah, uh, one of the things that goes along with the way they've decided to organize their, their distribution and uh, business model. Laura, great story. Thank you. Uh, be sure to check out Laura's full story on CNBC.com. Uh, let's trade this. I don't know. Is there, what is the thinking on Tesla around the table? I assume you guys have longstanding feuds. I, I have a short in the name. Um, my view is that the profitability that the company showed is something we need to see uh, in a sustainable. That is the issue with the company. The issue is not whether it's an auto company. The issue is not big data. The issue is whether the company truly has the ability to be free cash flow positive in an environment where I don't know that their funding opportunities are what they used to be. I look at this company a little bit different than Tim, and I've been more bullish than bearish on the name, but I think after the run that it's had, I'm not really ready to still be in there. Uh, we talked last night. I was in this stock for a while for a nice run to the upside. It's run another $70 to the upside. I just can't see it right now, Carl, and I'd, I'd, I'd use options one way or the other, whether or not somebody's bullish or bearish. That's the only way to trade this thing right now because when you look at it, to short, the, it's going to cost you a lot of money to short the stock. And if you want to go long the stock, you're looking at a stock that was $180 not that long ago that now is trading yep, just under Find your risk. Yeah. This business stock, just in a handful of months, is up 80 to 100%, depending on where you look at it from. But the relative strength index, it was overbought. It worked it off pretty quickly yes. and it's found support around that 327 328 level so if you're going to play it long you got to keep it on a very very tight leash but this this thing trades in momentum so as quick as it went up it can come back in if it breaks that 328 
it's going down at a deep discount. I did what? notice this morning sitting up their target to 222 yeah. from 191. <laughs> so there's still some non-believers. They still out might there. be right. Listen, I know we got to go quick here, but 180 in June, 360 a couple weeks ago. Rarely do you see a stock move like it did in October from 250 to 325 in a straight line without at some point retesting that. I think 270 is in the crosshairs here. All right, guys, uh, still ahead. There could be a breakout brewing in one biotech name. We're going to tell you what it is and what it might mean for the rest of the space. We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. More Fast Money is still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tomorrow could be a major moment for Biogen investors. If you recall, mm. the stock surged back in October after the company said it would seek regulatory approval on a major Alzheimer's drug. Tomorrow, Biogen is releasing new details on that drug. Our Meg Terrell back at HQ with What to Watch. Meg? Hey, Carl. Well, of course, that was such a shocking decision because, remember, seven months before that, Biogen had stopped development of that Alzheimer's drug after an analysis suggested it was unlikely to work. Now, the reversal after the company got additional data added back $10 billion in market value for Biogen and has now set up what J.P. Morgan calls the biggest non-election-related biotech story of the next 12 months. Tomorrow's update comes at an Alzheimer's disease conference in San Diego. And it's so closely watched because despite what the stock's done, there's a ton of skepticism about about this data. First, because Alzheimer's has been a notoriously hard area to develop drugs. The cause of the disease is still not agreed upon or fully understood, but also because of the nature of the Biogen data itself. Analysts say it's far from convincing. They're hopeful that tomorrow's presentation will bring more clarity, both on what drove the results and on the safety of the drug. They're pegging stock moves of 5 to 10 percent to either the upside or downside based on what we hear. But guys, it's also possible the update won't bring an enormous amount of clarity, kicking the ball further down the road to the FDA. Biden has said it plans to file for approval in early 2020, which means it's possible that the FDA decides on the drug late next year. Jeffries Michael Yee suggests there may be political pressure to approve the drug, even if the data aren't as robust as the regulator usually looks for, given the impact and the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. So many point out it puts investors in a really tricky spot, perhaps not 100 percent convincing data, but still the possibility of the first Alzheimer's drug approval in 17 years. Carl? That would be huge news. Meg, thank you very much. Uh, Pete, what do we think, especially after the initial run-up? It has been a widow-maker in the past for anybody in the drug industry that's trying to develop anything in the Alzheimer's world. And we've already seen this stock get hit hard because of that. And also, when they brought it back, look at that big rise that we've seen in the stock since. So, yes, it's, it, there's, Meg brought up all the different great points about all the regulatory as well as sort of some of the pressures as well to try to get something forward. We're talking about early 2020 and then possibly getting something by the end of the year. That's all really interesting. I'm in the calls right now. I I bought those today. And my rationale was I'd like to have some sort of a feel in there because of anything positive, I think it's more than a 5% move to the upside still. And that 10% move to the downside, I'm going to lose because of the calls that I've got. But I know exactly what my risk parameters are going in. But see, Pete knows the space very well. But for the average person, the IBB is a much better way to play it. Because if you look back, as Pete said, in March, they lost 30% in Biogen. Yes. And then in October, up 26%. And it's up 4% basically year to date. If you bought the IBB, you're up 24%. And you get Amgen. Gilead, Vertex, Illumina, and Biogen in the top holders. And agree with that, 
except for the fact that the IBB is up 25 percent in 40 sessions and is now back up at this 120 resistance. And, and also, again, after drastically underperforming the S&P on a relative basis by about 20 percent from kind of the earlier part of the year, it, it's now kind of right in line with its two-year average. And I, I just wonder whether this has been a recalibration that's kind of had its, had its time. Yeah, to Pete's point earlier, Alzheimer's absolutely the holy grail in the entire space, without question. But I do think now you know your downside in Biogen. It's probably 225 or thereabouts. And I agree. I think the downside is more than the 5 or 10% that they mentioned. But I think the upside, if they get this right, and it's not going to happen tomorrow or the next week, but if they get Alzheimer's right, the stock is a double from here. So despite the move we've seen over the last couple of weeks, I think the risk reward is still to the upside in Biogen. Yeah. Whether you're an investor or not, you kind of hope they're on the yeah, right track. 100%. Sure, for the good of a lot of people. Investors are certainly primed to get some big news from Biogen tomorrow. But will it be good news if traders in the option market have it right? The answer may be a resounding no. Mike Ho is out in San Francisco wow. with the options Mike. action. Mike. Well, first of all, there are a lot of people in the options market, and Pete is one of them, and we're actually taking a look at a reason why maybe buying calls is a better bet than going out and buying the stock. But actually taking a look at it, yesterday we saw puts outpaced calls by about 2 to 1. That was also true this morning, and by the end of the day, it traded almost two times the average daily put volume. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 7% higher or lower by the end of the week after this news comes out. And where I was seeing most of the opening activity this morning was actually in the weekly 275 puts. Those were trading for a little over $4. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that the stock could fall below that 275 strike price by at least the premium they paid. That suggests that they were betting that that 7-plus percent move could be to the downside. But as Pete was pointing out, look, that, those calls, if you are buying the at-the-money calls this, that expire this week, those are going to cost you about 3.5% of the current stock price. If Jeffries is right and the stock has a 10% move to the downside, even if it's a coin toss, it's clear that buying the calls would be a better way to make that bullish bet, even though the options markets are pricing in a much larger move than this stock typically sees. Mike, that's great insight. Thank you. I appreciate that. For more options action, tune into our live show this Friday, 5.30 p.m., Eastern Time. Mm. Up next, final trades. Mm. Welcome back to Fast Money. Looking at a live shot of Rockefeller Center. The Christmas tree crowds are gathering as that beauty is going to be lit up in just a few more hours. As we rock around the tree, let's also rock around the desk with our oh, final oh, nice. oh, That was really smooth and beautiful. I'm going to give you JetBlue. We had huge call buying in there today. I think it's going higher. Giddy up. All right, Tim. Guy, I don't know what time are we meeting over there. It's going to be a special no, night for us. Um, look, XLE, we talked a lot about energy tonight. And if you've owned energy and you were long the XLE against the SPY for the last five years, equal parts, you're down 51%. So it could still go down. But I do think we're getting to a place where energy fundamentals are improving. Bausch Health Company, BHC. I've been long this one for a while. This is a turnaround story. They're going to start deleveraging. They have the potential to buy up to 17% of the company back. Larry Robbins is there. He's very vocal on this name. BHC, I'm still in it. It's up 50% really quickly. So I understand if you want to lock in profits, but I'm still long. Q, when you hear this song, what movie do you think of quickly? We don't have a lot of time. Wrong. Home Alone. Home Alone. Hit the ding, ding, ding. I don't know what Symantec calls themselves, like Ed Norton or something now, but SYMC is going higher. you. Guys, thank you. You've been watching me. Let's get to Mad Money. Fast Money's back tomorrow at 5. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.